Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week on the podcast, we have International Bartender of the Year 2018, Mr. Joe Schofield. Joe tells us his story from his humble beginnings in Manchester, going to the American bar at the Savoy, to Tiplin Club in Singapore, and publishing his own cocktail book. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, my name is Joe Schofield and I'm a bartender. Thank you very much for finding the time, Joe. How's everything for you during these troubled times? Yeah, you know, it is a very challenging time for our industry, but we're trying to see um, the positive. You know, we're trying to, you know, involve ourselves in certain things that we might not necessarily have time to do before. Um, For example, I've just started doing an online accountancy course, something that's going to really help with my career, basically, and some of the other ventures that I have coming up. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, a, a lot of us have, like, we work so much in this industry. We do, we pull out so many hours weekly uh, that having such a downtime, you know, despite the fact that there are some challenges there for some of our colleagues, it is also a good opportunity for us to, as you said, pick up some new skills, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've been spending a lot of time cooking more. Uh, for example, I made ramen from scratch the other day, which took me about eight hours in the kitchen. And <laughs> that's uh, definitely something I don't normally have the luxury of time to be able to do. So, again, we're just trying to see the positive in a very, very challenging situation for our industry. How difficult was it to make ramen? I've seen a video of a guy making it. He's like a ramen master. He runs like a ramen uh, joint in, in New York, and he's got all these like twisting and spinning techniques. Was it difficult? Uh, to be honest, it's just quite time consuming just because we made it absolutely from scratch every single element but once you follow a good recipe it's easy enough was the kitchen a mess at the end of it uh to be honest i had to keep cleaning as i go in that was half of it using all these pots and pans and <laughs> so 50 percent of it was cleaning <laughs> pretty, pretty much yeah <laughs> great so let's get uh, let's get to it then so tell me a bit more uh so obviously we know you from uh, several of your projects in the past uh, we know you for uh several of the awards that you managed to achieve but what we're interested in is your your uh, journey so how did you manage to get there so first of all how did you start uh, what, what did you study at school like what, what is it that you prepared for so when i was at school i was really sort of moving towards something that was going to be quite creative so I spent a lot of time studying graphic design art and it was actually when i was still at school i started working in hospitality started working in a local pub up the road from my mum and dad's house called The Boar's Head in New Church. And it was um, a real local pub, you know, you'd have the same people coming through every single night. And I think it was there I really started to learn the very basics of hospitality, like name usage, uh, recognition. And then um, I continued my studies in, in sixth form, again, uh, taken to graphic design with like a means of going into perhaps something like graphic design or advertising. But I went over to Leeds Metropolitan University to study contemporary art. And that's when I realised how much I enjoyed working in hospitality and decided to pursue it as a career. Did you pick up a job while you were in Leeds at the university or not really? Yeah, I started working in um, a couple of nightclubs. Um, Chili White. I can't even remember the name of the other one now, to be honest. And then um, <laughs> and then it was I used to work in the cloakroom as well at one of those nightclubs. And then 
it was from then that I really started to be compassionate about cocktails and I used to go and drink in uh, Jake's Bar and at the time that was owned by uh, Jake Berger and I got to work with uh, Ricardo Dynan um, and that was where I really started to get heavily involved with the industry and starting to see it as a path for my career. Oh, that's awesome. And when did you decide to take it a step further? Like what was your first like a full hospitality job where you de- devoted yourself to it? Yeah, I guess it was um, Jake's Bar. I think uh, it was an amazing experience. And I, I always find it quite interesting that, you know, I think me and my brother are very fortunate that we managed to see two sides of the industry. Whereas like working in nightclubs and places like Jake's Bar, it's all about high volume and high energy. And even the Lions Club in Manchester, where um, I worked when I moved to Manchester after Leeds. And then also we've done the other side of the industry as well, where it's always about five-star service, you know, using scientific apparatus in the production of your cocktails. So that's something that we've always feel felt very privileged about, is that we've seen almost like the full spectrum of, of the drinks industry. Could you describe uh, Jake's Bar with two words? I'll give you two words. That's a tough one, actually. Because I've never been, I've never been to Jake's Bar. I've only met people who work there, and I've got a mixed bag of impressions. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can help me put it into shape. I'd say uh, music and shots. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, at uh, what point did you decide to move to London? So after spending time working in Manchester at the Liars Club, um, uh, you, you did. Decided... You worked at Liars Club as well. Yeah, I was part of the opening team. No way. Well, talk to us about that. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, that was uh, that was good fun. So it was from Leeds that I moved over to Manchester um, to open that bar with, you know, some uh, some amazing people, and it was it was an incredible experience, and it was by far the most like busy bar I've ever worked in. Like we used to have a queue when we opened from five o'clock in uh, the evening until about three o'clock in the morning people wanting to come in like our power levels for citrus were crazy it's like 60 liters of lime juice we needed and like 35 liters of lemon juice oh, for like a thursday night <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the full 10 hour shift was juicing everything from scratch and that, i think that's where i really started to develop as a bartender and um, i was pushed quite hard by some of my other teammates which i was very grateful for and then it was from there that i wanted to almost tie in a bit of travel with career development so I approached um, the Merivale group over in uh, Sydney. And at the time, they had a, a bar called Palmer Co. It's in the world's 50 best bars. And I was fortunate to be able to start working with those guys over there. How was Palmer Co.? It's a beautiful bar, eh? Yeah, it's stunning. How long, much time did you spend in Sydney? Um, I, I could only do six months. There was this rule at the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still there now where if you're on a working holiday visa, you can only work for one employer for, for a six-month period. So I did six months in Sydney and then I moved down to Melbourne to work for the Rockpool Group. Okay. Have you thought about um, moving to Australia permanently or was it some you knew from the beginning that this was going to be a temporary experience for you? Yeah, I mean, it it, it is an amazing country, especially for our industry. Um, and like the quality of life is great. But for me, I've always been quite close to my family. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that I, I was closer to, to, to them, basically. And like Australia is just so far away from the UK. <laughs> it's far away from everything. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's got an incredible bar scene, incredible restaurants. And I, I was, I've managed to get back there a couple of months ago, um, which is great. Always great to get back. So the, how did the clientele change from uh, UK, from Manchester to 
Australia? Uh, the drinking culture is is probably an ethos quite similar, but I think at the time, like Manchester, the the clientele that I was used to be serving weren't, you know, perhaps as educated as a lot of the Australian consumers. So I mean, in Manchester, we used to make the, a, a variation on a zombie, not the same high um, ABV. Um, but we used to make, you know, a hundred of those each night behind the bar at the Lies Clubs going over to Australia where, you know, people be ordering old fashions and Negronis and Martinez, espresso martinis. So I think perhaps they've just had a, a, a little bit more of an education from a cocktail side of things. At the time, I think Manchester's changed a lot since. And obviously it's complete different styles of bar because Palmer & Co is a very relaxed drinking environment, I guess, compared to Lyers Club. Yeah, and to, to be honest, Parmaco used to get really busy as well. It's you used to have people coming to the bar ordering like rounds of ten cocktails at a time, and like uh, I think when it opened, it was supposed to be, um, you know, all table service. And they realised, you know, how popular the venue was. They wanted to cater for everybody, and um, so they opened up the doors for a standing area as well. So we used to make a lot of drinks in there as well. But like, what I noticed, like having travelled to Australia, is that people really like to go to the bar and order. Like they yeah, really, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really a thing there, is it? <laughs> and it's, yeah, yeah. it's so funny because sometimes you see these people, they order like a round of 10 drinks and then they try to carry them to the table <laughs> and they spill out on the floor. Like, <laughs> it's hilarious to watch. Cool. So, uh, at some point, obviously, like your Australian experience uh, finished uh, and you wanted to go come back to the UK. And uh, how did you go about that? So, where in the UK did you yeah. want to go? And to be honest, like when I got back to the UK, I applied for a handful of jobs in the UK and overseas as well. And I think one of the great things about our industry is that it does open up opportunities for you to travel as well as uh, developing your career. So at the time, um, I was working at uh, the Zeta Townhouse and I did almost coming up to a year there, I think. And again, I started to get itchy feet and I, I had a one way ticket but after leaving to, to go down to Costa Rica and I was going to go down there and travel around Central and South America for a little while and try and learn Spanish and progress that way and get, get a job in a bar. And then it was literally like the week before I left, I got a message from a mutual friend of mine and Declan's, who's obviously we both know is the bar manager of the American Bar of the Savoy, saying that he's put my name forward for a position that's come up. And for me, I've always loved those sort of legendary bars and I used to go and drink at the Savoy when I was in London and for me, I couldn't turn down that opportunity. So I went through the the interview process. I think I had like four interviews and then it was literally on the day before I was about to fly to Costa Rica with a one-way ticket. I get a phone call from the F&B director at the time telling me I've got a job. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe I should change those plans then. <laughs> That's so cool. And, and yeah, so we flew back from... Did Costa Rica, Panama, then I flew back from Los Angeles straight into London to start working the, the next day at the Savoy. And the first thing I remember Declan said to me pretty much on my first day was, you need to get your hair cut. <laughs> really? Day one? Yeah, day oh. one, yeah. <laughs> How was your hair? What did, what did you have? Like, was it afro? It's or? probably not too far off what you were looking at. <laughs> at the I moment. Know, right? It was just super long. <laughs> I couldn't manage to get myself into a barber's. So, but tell us a bit about how was your Costa Rica trip? Yeah, it was amazing. It was, um, I just spent a bit of time uh, traveling around on my own for, I think I did like three, four weeks or something. Traveling around the country. And what, what really attracted to me about the place was how uh, sort of diverse the flora and fauna is. 
it was crazy just like walking down the road and then you see these like animals come out of nowhere like something that you've never seen before there's so much like flowers so much trees it's an amazing place cool so after you got a haircut how did your career at the savoy progress <laughs> yeah so so when when i was at the savoy my my role was uh, junior bartender so i used to spend like as you know because obviously we were together but we used to spend three four days a week in the american bar one or two days a week in the Beaufort bar and my role was essentially, I think my role was basically just to cover holes in the rotor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be spending a lot of time split between doing the host role at both bars, and, you know, server role in both bars and also bartender in both bars. And I think for me, it was actually a really uh, challenging role, one that I'm very grateful for. And I think it certainly helped me a lot in, uh, in my career. But I was basically trying to do um, six jobs as well, and if not better than anybody else uh, for a promotion. So I find that quite challenging, but also very rewarding. So how long did you work there for? Almost two years. And uh, did the promotion come? No, it didn't. It's, uh, because I think, I think... It's, it's quite funny because the, the promotion was about to come and you were next in line. But then yeah, I, I, I guess that... you had different plans. Yeah, to be honest, I like to think that if I'd stayed a little bit longer, hopefully I would have had that opportunity. But again, at the time, I guess I just started to get itchy feet and wanting to explore a bit more of the world. And my my wife and I decided to make the move over to Asia. And Mimi got offered an amazing role at Singapore. And for me, like Singapore had such an incredible scene that was booming. I thought it'd be an amazing opportunity for me as well. Eh? But I think, honestly, having worked with you, I think that uh, you have managed to take a position, the one that's uh, splitting between the two bars, which is extremely challenging. And you managed to turn that to your advantage because you have basically managed to get the best of both experiences. I, th I think it must have been extremely challenging, but, you know, like you really took advantage of the situation. Well done. Oh, thanks, man. And I think at the time it was, um, you know, it was great because obviously... I've got a chance to work with Eric and Chris, who both have very different ideals and styles and of how to approach making drinks and service. So I really had an opportunity to learn a lot from both of them, as well as uh, learning from Anna and Declan as well. How did they change your perspective on drinks, Eric and Chris? Um, if they if they changed it, or like I'm I'm sure they gave you some like some inspiration for future development, right? Yeah, definitely. They're both like amazing at, you know, creating drinks in their own way. Like Chris, for example, we all know he's created the champagne pina colada, apples, like two incredible drinks, whereas Eric's styling is a lot more classic. Um, I think that's really helped to shape the way that I approach making cocktails and drinks. You mentioned your wife. Uh, where did you meet? Uh, we actually met at the Savoy um, just w when I started. <laughs> Don't don't tell Declan or Anna. <laughs> no, no worries. I want that one. Forbidden, forbidden to court uh, guests, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we met at the Savoy, and then uh, we met at uh, like an industry party a couple of weeks later, and then the rest is history, yeah, I guess. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah. She's our yeah. first episode, you know that. Um, yeah, cool. yeah. So, uh, you decided to move to Singapore then? Yeah. How, how did you feel about this change? Because it's a big change. Definitely, and, and to be honest. That not even just culturally, but also in terms of my role and responsibility, it was a huge, huge, drastic change. And um, so I went from being a junior bartender at the Savoy to being a group bar manager of five outlets in Singapore. So there was a lot that I had to adapt to really quickly, whether that's changing 
or even basically developing a management style for that size of operation, understanding the corporate side of the business, how to be working with, you know, multiple outlets, multiple teams, multiple cultures throughout the business as well. Um, so, I mean, like we only ever really spoke about uh, Tippling Club as it was almost like the flagship or the jewel of the crown of the group. But there was four other concepts all extremely different as well. And being have to create and execute beverage programs for each one was, again, a, a rewarding challenge. So how was Tippling Club for you? Like, how did you find it when you get there? What opportunities have you identified as soon as you got there? I think, like, like for me, I, I was just so excited to work at Tipling Club uh, with, with Ryan Cliff because at, at the time there was a lot of, you know, the, a lot of the on-trade talking about working with chefs or working a little bit more like chefs. And and for me, there was nobody really doing it at the time, perhaps the guys in the, the aviary in Chicago. But apart from that, there was nobody actually working so closely with fine dining chefs of that level. Um, so that was one of the things that I was really excited about. And and I think as well, like, for, for some reason, the restaurant bar as a category has always been so overlooked. And I think it's just such an amazing place to be able to work with uh, not just chefs, but also learning about wine. You know, you're learning about food, learning about different styles of hospitality. And that's something I would like to see more is that restaurant bars getting a little bit more recognition globally. You think they are not recognized enough? I think it's it's always a funny one because I think when people want to go for drinks, they don't necessarily think uh, restaurant bar. And I think it's about that sort of identity crisis that venues can have where they perceive maybe as a restaurant too much or where, where people don't really feel as inclined to go in for, to drink there. But but for me, restaurant bars, I love it. I can get a great bar snack. I can, you know, maybe have a nice glass of wine, enjoy some great service. And these things, I think, really help to create a full guest experience. But I think things are evolving a little bit because if you look at places like Dante's, for instance, they're starting to get a lot of industry recognition. Yeah. I, I should say, I think restaurants bar are really like starting to bloom right now. Like it's starting to shift from uh, hotel bars. And well, not shift, but, you know, I think hotel bars are getting a lot of recognition as well as like restaurant bars are starting to really take it up a notch. I don't know. That That's my yeah. thing. Yeah, definitely. I think hopefully Dante, you know, with all the recognition there, get really helped to drive that that category forward. But I mean, if you look at any sort of the the awarding bodies in our industry, you seldom see any sort of restaurant bars in there, uh, in comparison to the sort of independent bars or hotel bars. And mm-hmm. um, so it'd be nice to still see a few more, in my opinion. So about Tipling Club, first of all, was this this was your first experience working in Asia? Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, how was that? As a, was it like, did you find it uh, difficult or did you find some difficulties into adjusting to like the different culture? Yeah, I think uh, one of my biggest challenges was was finding a bar team. Um, at the time, I think Singapore, from what I understand, is still an extremely competitive industry in terms of finding staff and uh, keeping staff and staff retention. So that, that was one of the hardest things I had to uh, face when I moved out there. Just very grateful that Singapore has English as one of its main languages. Otherwise, I'd be really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, it was just a great experience to really try and understand more about so many different cultures in the region. Because for me, I always think of Singapore as like a cultural melting pot of all these countries from around the region coming together. So you get to see a little bit of that culture on a day-to-day basis, whether it's from 
um, Malaysia, from China, from India. You really get to experience quite a rich experience mm -hmm. in terms of cultures. Cool. Uh, you've been quite prolific when you were at uh, Tipling Club. Uh, you have developed a couple of menus which had a specific, uh, like, I don't know, they had a specific thread connecting them. Would you like to talk to us about those? Yeah, sure. So myself and Ryan sat down on during my first week at Tipling Club and we're having a conversation about what sort of direction we need to take the beverage program. Um, and it was great because Ryan was always so empowering of, of me and my role and uh, what I wanted to achieve. So, so we sat down and we, we both realized that the aroma is something that's always often overlooked in not just drinks, but also in food as well. So we thought, let's explore aroma and fragrance and see if there's anything we can do around that. So we set out to create a, a cocktail menu that you would choose your drink with a smell. And then over numerous creative meetings that we had, we evolved the concept to being about memory triggers because basically that's how memory triggers work. You smell a certain aroma and it takes you back to a specific point in your life. And we thought that could be such a unique and most importantly, an engaging experience for our guests. And the whole thing about these menus is we need to create something fun, something engaging, but was also a symbol of what Tipling Club was about and communicating that identity, which was about innovation and pushing the boundaries and a sensory experience. So with the first menu, we looked to the past with memory triggers and aroma. Uh, for the next menu, we wanted to look to the future with dreams and desires and through what we still believe was the first ed completely edible cocktail menu. We've seen examples of it in the past where you've got a range of whiskeys and you choose your whiskey by eating a chocolate or there's even a restaurant in Chicago where you actually eat the menu because it's printed on edible paper. But each one of the gummy bears have the main flavours of the cocktail and also flavours that are representative of the dream or desire. So your guests will come in and eat the gummy bears to choose the drink, basically. And to this point, I think we made over half a million handmade gummy bears upstairs in Tipling Club. Because <laughs> we used to make 1,200 every day. Whoa. Yeah, because those things were so addictive. Like when I came to visit Tipling Club, I literally had half of the bag of gummy bears just while I was choosing my drink, you know? I mean, it's a cool tool to choose a drink, but also the gummy bears are delicious. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of work that went into those. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad I managed to stuff myself with them. So <laughs> why gummy bears? Uh, I guess we wanted something that is a little bit fun, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and also something that you're used to having in different flavors, which would make sense for our menu. Awesome. Uh, so we have uh, discussed uh, that specific element of it, but also when you were in Asia, you started to really travel a lot, more than what you did before. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because of the menus and... Uh, you know, I guess mainly because of the menus, we used to get a lot of opportunities for activations in the region. So I always had a focus to make sure that I was in service as much as possible, five, six days a week. But I would only do one activation overseas per month so I could remain in service and remain with the team in Singapore. Like traveling, it can be quite complicated, right? I mean, most of the people see the glamour of the fact that you manage to travel a lot. But what they don't say is the fact that you close the bar, you go to the airport, you land somewhere, unpack, do your work, and then pack and then fly in for a shift the day after, right? So, like, what were the yeah. challenges that you had? I, I think one of the, the biggest ones is uh, finding produce. Like, we always used to take as much as we could uh, from the bar. Obviously, it's easier to do preps and uh, you meet some plus in a space that you already know. 
But like sometimes you turn up to an event and produce wouldn't be ordered or it'd be missing or there'd have been a miscommunication. And so I think the majority of events that you do, there's always things that go wrong and it's just about finding solutions with them. So then in 2018, you were still at Tiffin Club or you left already? Uh, I left in June 2018. Okay, cool. And then in 2018, you received uh, an award. Would you like to talk to us about that? Yeah, so I in... Yeah, it was July 2018. I won the International Bartender of the Year at Tales of the Cocktail. How did that feel? Were you expecting it? Like, I know you cannot expect these things, but like, have you had a feel for it? Uh, the year before, I made top 10 uh, international bartender. And to be honest, it was just whenever you get recognition from your peers, it's always very humbling. And it's always quite nice to uh, to be recognized like that. Um, but to me, I still see that award as like a team award for... Uh, the team at Tiplin Club, Brian, the front of house, the bar team, everybody. Because if it wasn't for all those people, there's no way we would have been recognized on a global stage like that. And that's an awesome thing to, to say. I think it's quite important to recognize the fact that every successful bartender out there has a very, very strong team behind him that supports him on a day-to-day basis and allows them to do what they do, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. How did that feel to collect that award, though? Um, like how long did it take to sink in that's what i'm wondering like because I, i'm sure that like everything must have felt extremely surreal on the day right yeah definitely and like looking back it would probably taken a couple of a couple of days to sink in and again it's just about bringing the team in to be part of that uh recognition and that award but like um it certainly helped with my sort of career and setting up my own ventures um once you have some recognition like that, it makes things a lot easier. And so I'm very grateful for, for that experience. Cool. Um, you obviously left the Tipping Club. Uh, what, what's your current relationship with them? So, yeah, I left the um, Tipping Club uh, just before before winning that award at Tails. And both myself and Ryan have had such an amazing working relationship that we'll need to continue that. So... Um, upon my departure, we've since set up our, our consultancy company called Sensorium. Uh, we take the name from the Sensorium menus that we created together, and we've got a handful of projects in the pipeline. And yeah, it's an exciting time for the business. Hmm. Like we all, this is a very creative industry, and we all have a lot of ideas. But it's quite difficult to generate an idea and then activate that idea. So, how do you manage to not so much as coming up with the idea, but how do you activate it? So what's how does this process work for you? Uh, so so taking the menus as an example, like each one of those was about a 10-month journey um, from ideation all the way through to execution. You know, I've got multiple spreadsheets that I was working on on my laptop, making sure everything was in place for orders, for service, menu wording, every menu costing. You know, it's there's so many things that you don't really see back of house to go into those things all the creative meetings uh, finding the right partners samples and um, and then ultimately i think what a lot of people don't realize is that the drink recipes and the drink ideas actually come last it's about making sure everything else is in place and, and then the recipes do come and um, not just because i think that drink recipes are quite uh, time sensitive like trends change continually if you want to keep doing something innovative you have to almost leave it to the last point possible um but also just from an execution search you need to make sure you've got everything back of house like will these ideas even work from for a service perspective will they generate 
more income from the business? Are they to a standard that we're proud to be serving at Tipling Club? Um, so all these sort of questions and all these things all have to be dealt with beforehand. And I think it's quite important to remember the fact that bars are still businesses. So whenever you come up with a super cool idea, the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, this idea has to generate revenue, right? If it's impossible for you to make those drinks that you have on the menu, then there's no point for you to have them there. Absolutely, yeah. And this is something that we always had to take into consideration as well, because we were a very small team. It was me, three full-time members of staff, and one part-timer, basically. So we had to... You know, obviously make all the gummy bears, make all the garnish, all the garnish we had, we need to make sure it looked like it come out of um, the pastry kitchen, even though it was myself and the rest of the bar team making these garnishes. And we also needed to make sure that that we could run an effective service because it was only ever most likely me, another person with me on the bar, and two people on the bar floor, so that's four people for like a busy night, um, making all the drinks, polishing all of our own glasses, um, serving all the tables so it was really about how efficient we can be with a space that was was getting you know very busy at the time because of not just because of the menu but the bar was getting busier more people were coming through and making more drinks so we had to factor all these things into into place to be able to make sure that we were doing justice to the tipling club band at what point did you decide to move from singapore and why so it just felt like the right time, personally and professionally, to come back to Manchester. Um, you know, I felt that I've achieved what I set out to achieve in, in Singapore. Um, you know, from a professional and a personal side of things as well. And it just seemed that it, it was just the right time because, you know, I could continue my relationship working with Ryan. I could set up my own venture in Manchester um, and plus, I was having a lot of opportunity to work with brands and activations around the world, which was an incredible experience. And um, so everything just fell into place quite nicely. Cool. But uh, as we discussed, you still have an amazing relationship with Ryan. So that went very well for uh, from your side. Uh, so we, then you moved back to the UK. Uh, how did that feel after the Singapore experience? Yeah, I mean, I definitely miss Singapore a lot. Um, but it was also quite nice getting back to the UK, spending a bit more time with my family, with my friends. I could still spend a lot of time with uh, my old school friends that I've known for about 20 years now. So it's been great really seeing th- those people a lot. And also it's great to get to know Manchester again. It's the home city. Me and Daniel were born just on the outskirts. And, and the city's adapted and evolved so much since I was working there that it's been almost like getting to know it from, from fresh again. So since I've known you, you always said to me that your goal was eventually to work with your brother on your own project. Would you like to talk to us about Daniel a little bit? Yeah, so um, so, so my brother's uh, Daniel Schofield. He's uh, been in the industry now for almost 11 years, I believe. We spent some time working in some amazing bars all over the world. And yeah, now it's nice to be working on our own project together after 25 years of collectively working in the industry. So... Do you guys have uh, similar ideas when it comes to drinks or do you kind of complement each other because you have different approaches? I think we both come from very similar schools. We've worked in some venues in the past that have you know, had some of the same people working in them or working on the beverage program. So I think we're very aligned in that side of things. But we've also worked in some of the same venues like Jake's Bar or the Lions Club. So we've both got the same sort of foundations of what we think are 
a hospitality experience should be. Fantastic. And you've worked together on the book, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Schofield's Finding Classic Cocktails. <laughs> so what was the idea? Why did you decide to write a book? Because it's it, first of all, it must have been quite a quite a project, right? Yeah, that was a that was a long project that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, we we just felt at the moment that in the industry, I mean, we started writing that probably about two years ago, two and a half years ago, and we just felt at the time that nobody was really focusing on the classics or you know the essentially the basics of what you should be learning about to work in a bar. Um, so that's why we wanted to do a classic cocktail book because, yeah, there, there are some amazing books that cover that on the market, but at the time everyone was talking about Rotovap, Centrifuge, all these very progressive ideas. And we were just like, well, there's nothing really that I can think of that's a great resource for, you know, like a young bartender or even a home enthusiast, which was also important to us because we wanted to make sure that, you know, consumers can pick up the book and understand it. They would tell you all the basics that you need to know about you know creating cocktails and classic cocktail recipes a little bit about the history and also one of the things that our publisher asked us to do was talk about spirits that we like because that was something that she felt that consumers didn't really understand is that what spirits can you use to make great cocktails so for us we wanted this to be just a very very um almost like an entry-level book for consumers or or young bartenders to pick up and get a real grasp of classic cocktails. How did the, how was the process of writing a book? What were the challenges you had? Cause it, it looks easy. Like, like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you just put together a bunch of recipes and press enter and there you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it was, it was very challenging, but like the thing is that nobody spoke to us about writing a book. We had to go out and pitch it for ourselves and, you know, get a publisher. And we actually got a great publisher, um, Kyle, is our publishing house and they've been amazing to work with um so we had to go out there and we had to go and essentially create documents and we gathered quotes from about 100 people from all over the world in positions of authority on the drinks industry telling them well basically going into our our briefing document our presentation document about why we are eligible and appropriate to write a book so we managed to get that over the line and then we had about a nine-month period to get 30,000 uh, words onto paper, which I don't think sounds like too much when you think about writing a book, but it's basically three university dissertations about um, <laughs> what, we've been, <laughs> what we've been doing over the last 25 years collectively. And one, one of the hardest things is just going through uh, the text with basically a microscope, trying to find all the spelling mistakes. Have you using the same words too much? Are you, does this make sense from a, from a consumer's point of view? Where can we improve? So I think you probably end up reading your own book probably about 10, 15 times, and that does not get any easier. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But it was a cool experience, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. And just when you get that first copy in your hands, you realize that it was an absolutely worthwhile experience. And, you know, even just being able to give a, the first copy to our grandma as well and just see her reaction and how much it meant to her, it was definitely worth it. Oh, fantastic. And uh, the two of you also worked on other booth, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Schofield's driving me. Just to stay on brand. Yeah, that's it, yeah. So so that all came about when uh, I was leaving Singapore, actually. And uh, I had a tasting of the Astley Bros range from Chris Marshall. 
And um, I asked for him to put me in touch when I get back to the UK because I think I even said it back then and now I've joined them as creative director. I'm not biased at all, I'll say it again, that I really think he makes some of the best vermouth in the world using English botanicals, English grapes. Uh, Rob and Jim are incredible at what they do. So we reached out to them when we got back to the UK and we set up a meeting and I'm always one of those people that'd rather ask the question than never know. So I just asked them if they'd be interested in working together in bringing uh, an English dry vermouth to market. And this took quite a lot of time, obviously, with the development stage and sourcing the grapes, because obviously when you do these things, you want to make sure your supply chain's sorted. So that, again, was probably about another year, a year and a half project um, until it came to fruition. But the conversation naturally evolved with Rob and Jim for me to be coming on board with the company as, as creative director. Um, so yeah, they've, they've just been nothing but an absolute pleasure to work with. And, and again, an amazing feeling being able to bring a product to market with, with your name on the bottle. And especially when we're going into opening Schofield's Bar, all these little things really help. What uh, was the idea behind the vermouth? Would you like to talk to us about what flavor of profile you went for and why? Yeah, definitely. I think for us, we wanted to do something that was a little bit, a little bit disruptive almost of the dry vermouth category because, again, I think it's just an area that's been so overlooked in so many years that people, you know, when they're making a martini, they'll just use a small amount of it and not really give too much thought or consideration to the vermouth that they're using or why they're using it or even the flavour profile of it. Whereas with Schofield's dry vermouth, it's um, very floral. It's quite robust in its flavour and we wanted a vermouth that's not just going to be used for like five ml in a martini once, you know, once a night, something that you can actually serve and be proud of serving your guests over ice or topped up with soda or topped up with tonic, something that can be drunk in its own right. So there's a lot of jasmine, a lot of elderflower, a bit of chamomile in there and it's using English-grown Sable Blanc, Bacchus and Chardonnay so it's a truly English driving move. That's fantastic. Must have been a cool project to work on, eh? Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a cool project. And, you know, it's it's very nice this year to be recognized by Tales of the Cocktail once again for best new cocktail ingredient with the vermouth and also top 10 best new bartending book with um, Schofield's Finding Classic Cocktails. That's awesome, though. That's a great achievement. So well done for mentioning them. Um, would you like to talk to us about your current sponsor? Yeah, so I'm a brand ambassador for a company called Visug. Visug are a very high-end, innovative, uh, luxury kitchen appliance company based out of uh, a town called Zug, which is just outside Zurich in Switzerland. And how did that come about? So my business partner, Ryan's always had a really good relationship with Visug. He's one of their ambassadors and he put me uh, forward to become one of their ambassadors as well. I'm the only non-chef brand ambassador to, to be part of the company and they're going to be helping us with some equipment for the bar in Manchester as well once we get open. So you'll finally get to design home kitchens that are bartender friendly. That's it. <laughs> Meaning that they clean themselves. Yeah? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, like some of the stuff they have is amazing. They've got a piece of equipment called the Refresh Butler and it looks like a little bit like a fridge and what you do, it's about an hour and a half cycle, is that you take your jacket off, you take your coats, you hang it in there, your guests go to dinner in the restaurant and uh, it basically dry cleans your clothes without the use of any chemicals. No way. I have no idea how the equipment works, but it's, it's, the stuff that they do is so innovative. It's crazy. Sounds awesome. 
So looking back at your career, you went from uh, starting as a bartender, like we all did, to sort of work in a variety of different projects. And a lot of them span like across different industries and they all have the bar at heart, but they do a lot of different things. What kind of suggestion would you like to give to a young bartender who's entering this industry looking at your career? I think, you know, one of the things that this industry is amazing for is that there's just so much opportunity there if you know where to look for it. And I know that's that's very easy for me saying that, talking about opportunities with sort of my um, ethnicity and, you know, my background and my age and my gender. Um, but if you know where to look for it, this there is so much opportunity there for us. And I think one of the most important things that I've learned is never just be afraid to ask the question. The worst you're going to hear is no. So these things like the book or the vermouth, not even opening my own business, these things would never have happened unless I went out and asked the questions and, and made them happen, basically. What was, we talked about the highest point of your career. Uh, what was the lowest point of your career? A point where you were like, okay, you know, th- that's it, this is not for me, I'm out. Lowest point? Um, yeah, I, I think it, I think everybody gets a little bit like that sometimes. And, you know, I think the last time that happened was perhaps what encouraged me to, you know, consider going down to Costa Rica to learn Spanish was uh, just maybe we need to try something new, go in a different direction. And I think a lot of people where they talk about it not have these sort of peaks and troughs where they're like, they don't have the motivation anymore. They want to try something new. Um, but for me, I think around then I was considering a bit of a career change, maybe going into photography. And then it was when I started working at Savoy that it started to re- relight that passion for the industry for me again. That's fantastic. Uh, a final question that I would like to ask you is the importance of social media nowadays. Uh, it's quite crucial. Uh, you have grown exponentially your social media from like zero to hero. Like when I when, when I met you for the first time, you were going around with the Nokia 3310 saying that uh, you don't <laughs> want to have Facebook and you don't want to use social media at all. But now you're, uh, you're completely different. So w- what changed uh, your mind and how did you go about creating a social media persona like you did? I think it's it, it just became so clear that it was a very important tool for our industry. Um, not only because it helps create opportunities with you to work with brands or work on activations, which whether you know these brands are open about it and transparent about it or not, is important to them. If you are, if you have got more followers and you've got more coverage for them, it's just one of those things that makes sense from a business decision. And that's when I started to really invest in social media. Um, I think it's, it's that thing. It's like people around the world might never get opportunity to meet you or to try your drinks, but at least they can see what you're up to, what sort of thing you're doing, and it really helps to raise your profile. I was very lucky in Singapore when I started to get a lot of momentum behind myself on on social media, so we had a great PR team, and that's when my following started really gathering momentum. Awesome. And uh, so, what steps did you take to try to increase that? Was it just try to generate as much content as possible? Like good content, I mean. Yeah, good content. Like, I mean, whenever I'm posting on Instagram, it's only about three things. It's about, you know, uh, an experience, food or drink. And I think you have to understand who your following is. If it's bartenders, they want to see stuff about cocktails or drinks or other projects that are relatable. Um, So I always try and post quite a lot about that. Um, But I think it's also important to make sure that persona that you portray on social media 
is the same as the persona that you portray in real life. So I don't use any sort of words or phrasing or nothing that I wouldn't be comfortable saying in real life. Awesome. I think that covers it. So last question I asked to everyone, if you could choose your very last drink, what would that be? I a Guinness. R- really? Why? <laughs> I just love Guinness. <laughs> I, I think it's got a lot of, um, I, I've got like a big connection to it. Like I've, it's always been uh, one of my favorite drinks whenever I've been meeting my brother or friends from around the world or even my friends from home. But more often than not, we'll go first for a pint of Guinness somewhere like, somewhere like the Two Pin in London or... Uh, Mulligans in Manchester. Cool, fantastic, Joe. It was awesome to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Cheers, Michaela. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Joe. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal account at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.